this process of awakening that we're we have embarked upon is a very uh, gradual transition from um, doing a Dharma practice or technique for some kind of um, intended result. But for any of us who stay long with the practice, we see that it gradually grows into uh, becoming more of a lifestyle, a way of life, a view of life, um, an awakening into the fullness of life, of what it means to be a human being, to suffer, and to, to really seek to understand the nature of suffering and the end of suffering. And the journey or the fuel, maybe the fuel for this journey is to develop this uh, acceptance, a joyful acceptance of a long enduring mind because the journey is long and we do need to uh, discover, you know, the the challenges, the obstacles, uh, the joys, the sorrows. Uh, of full life. So I want to speak about what I have come to consider five lessons that I've learned pointing to some of the principles guiding this transformation to joyfully accept this long-enduring mind. And the first is to commit to a path that is worthy of your efforts. The second is to accept the way it is as it is. The third is to practice impeccably, meaning to do your best. The fourth is to persevere joyfully. And the fifth is to express your gratitude. These are lessons I've learned that that, uh, evolve from practice and I've found them to be maybe turning points in the understanding of what this process of awakening is about. So when I say to commit to a path worthy of your efforts, I want to talk about two things. I want to talk about the nature of commitment and I want to talk about the nature of a path. Because the nature of a commitment is that it is a living thing. We don't make a commitment and then forget it for the next 15 years thinking that somehow that commitment is a fulfillment. But really a commitment is something like an aspiration. And it is living and it grows through repetition and recommitment. Now we need to understand that repetition need not be uh, numbing, routine, automatic pilot, as Krishnamurti said, I do yoga every day, but I've never made a habit of it. <laughs> now you can imagine what it would take to do something every day and not let it become a habit. <clears throat> it takes a presence of mind. It takes a recommitment every day to be present with what is so familiar and so repetitive, and yet you can do it as if for the first time every day. So it is a uh, is a wise choice, something that we consider and reflect upon and reaffirm uh, daily. I was recounting to one of the groups that more than twenty years ago, when uh, Kamala and I first started the month long retreats on Maui. The first retreat, there was a woman came who came to celebrate her 20th year of sobriety in AA. And it was a, a way of being nice to herself to come to a month-long retreat. So I, I, I spoke to her and I said, wow, 20 years of sobriety. Must be getting easier by now. She said, no, it doesn't. 
Every day, you have to reaffirm that commitment to, in her case, stay sober or whatever, whatever it is they are committed to, but certainly staying sober. And it surprised me that she said that, but I realized for myself that that's right. <laughs> you know, you don't start out on day one thinking, I have a 20-year commitment. You have a commitment for one day at a time. <coughs> one day at a time. And so to know what that commitment is, the nature of commitment, it thrives on repetition, it thrives on wisdom, it thrives on wise choice. And as Sayadaw says, he said, we should consider meditation and the development of wisdom more as a marathon than a sprint. Because our, you know, our self-confidence our knowledge, our understanding are very weak when we start. And our commitment or our aspiration may be more an expression of faith than, than wisdom. But in time, through practice and through facing the challenges that we inevitably will, then our trust in ourselves, our trust in the teachings, our trust in the practice, our faith that there is some value and worth to it. It's possible to disentangle the heart from suffering. It grows. And it grows by this development of these qualities called the paramis, the forces of purity in our mind. These are the forces that uh, the Bodhisattva had to perfect to become a Buddha. And in fact, the Bodhisattva, once making the vow to become a Buddha... Uh, voluntarily undertook lifetime, hundreds of lifetimes in the most challenging situations in order to grow in capacity to be patient, to be generous, to be loving, to be understanding, to have resolve, to be effortful or energetic. And when perfected to the point of they being the default setting of the mind, meaning they're the first recourse of the mind in every situation to be generous, to be loving, to be patient, rather than to be critical, to be impatient, to be reactive, which we know. To make these wholesome qualities of the mind, the default set of the mind, takes practice. It's not impossible. We all have the potential. We all may have may value them. But we can see from our own experience today that they're not the default setting yet. But this kind of commitment is not something that, you know, you don't get a merit badge for having a day-long commitment. And it requires really a tremendous amount of humility because when you make a commitment, you accept that this is, this is, this is the work. This is what I'm doing with my life. And we never know what's going to happen. We never really know what we're going to have to face. And so, because we don't know, we can't pretend otherwise. And to not pretend means to have a humble relationship with the unknown. And the... driver of the car, if you will, the driver of the vehicle, is our own resolve and willingness to hear the Dharma, to accept the guidance of the Dharma, and to practice. And as I mentioned last night, speaking about the not-self characteristic, you know, you can hear this dozens of times and still find it difficult to even believe or accept. And yet, as we hear it, and we practice, we begin slowly to somehow accommodate and begin to see our life through the lens of the right views that we hear. So we listen to the Dharma. We listen to the teachings of the Buddha pointing to the truth, pointing to the way things are, pointing to cause and effect in order to hear of what we don't know, to hear of a way of life that we've never heard of. But also to correct some misunderstandings. 
some assumptions, some beliefs that we have acquired through our conditioning, parents, culture, society, education. Conditioning that may be suitable for doing well in society, but society's standards may not be sufficient for liberation from suffering. You know, you really have to consider whether, you know, kind of fully accommodating the social expectations that, or just living within the bounds of what is socially acceptable, whether that is really going to take you to discover the sources of suffering. We live in a society that tolerates deception. Tremendous deception. Cynicism, skepticism, outright disbelief. And it's in splashed across the front pages of papers every day. And we can't read this every day. We can't see this every day. We can't uh, recognize this is going on every day without being deeply conditioned by that acceptance. And so when we look inside our own heart and we see our own capacity to be deceptive, uh, to be less than open, honest, truthful. Uh, you know, it's said that the Bodhisattva, once he made the vow to become a Buddha and lived those hundreds of lifetimes to develop the paramis, it's said that he failed frequently, broke all the precepts many times, except the one about keeping the truth. In hundreds of lifetimes, never spoke an untruth. Because the Dharma is seeking the truth. Really seeking to understand, this is the way it is. And if we can't and don't make that commitment, even though our society tolerates it, expects it, they don't want you to tell the truth. But that's not... That may not be sufficient for freeing your own heart from suffering. So we can see that, you know, being socially adapted is not the goal. So we listen to the Dharma to hear what we don't yet know, to correct assumptions, misunderstandings, wrong views that we have acquired, and to inspire us, to entertain us, to encourage us, because it's believable when the Buddha says, this is what I did, this is what I saw, this is what I knew. And when we read the stories of others at the time of the Buddha who also undertook that practice, who also realized, as they acknowledged, or as the Buddha acknowledged, their liberation from suffering. It's believable. But it's not our experience. But it can be very inspiring. It can be very encouraging for ourselves. And we also listen to the Dharma because, you know, we are very easily seduced by comfort. And comfort is not a goal worthy of your efforts. This path of awakening, we we will have to learn to tolerate discomfort. Physical discomfort, emotional discomfort. Uh, Playing the edge of what we can tolerate now in order to grow in in capacity. As Saito Upandita frequently acknowledged, it is nobler to live a worthy life than than a successful one. Just being a success may not be so difficult, but living a worthy life, you must be willing to invest everything. Making such a commitment has a power beyond knowledge and effort. One time after, when I used to teach the three-month course, I'd be away from Maui for three months teaching in Massachusetts and it was a long time to be away and when I would return when I would return to Maui we'd often take a couple of days to land and one year we went to the resort down at the beach went down for dinner had a wonderful dinner 
and a beautiful sunset. At the end of the dinner, called for the dessert menu. Took a look at the dessert menu, picked the most delicious looking thing. It was chocolate covered chocolates, coated chocolate, 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 chocolate. <laughs> One of those things. So we got the dessert and kind of tucked into the dessert and immediately felt like chocolate, chocolate, chocolate. <laughs> uh, it was, you know, a big rock in the top of a pleasantly full belly. And out of kind of, well, I guess just exasperation or you know, just like fed upness. I just said, "I'm not going to eat any more chocolate. I'm going to take. I'm going to. I'm not going to eat any chocolate for a year." The comedy goes, "Would you say? I'm not going to eat any chocolate for a year. This is making me sick." She said, "You got to be kidding." I said, "No, I'm not kidding." <laughs> she said, "Well, if if you're not going to eat any chocolate, I guess I better not eat any chocolate." So I said, "Okay, no chocolate for a year." So, you know, come January 1st, you know, it doesn't take long before you're offered chocolate. You know? <laughs> or you're, you're out for dinner and there's chocolate desserts. But the first couple of times, it was like, yeah, ah, no, can't, can't do chocolate. All right, let's find something else. What else is there to eat that is even less? You know? And the first few times, it was like reaffirming the commitment, reaffirming the, uh, i got to reaffirm that decision that I made. And it was a little challenging. We did allow ourselves one out. If we got upgraded in the first class, we were flying on, and they happened to serve chocolate ice cream, we would accept it. <laughs> Didn't happen often. But nevertheless, that was our one out. But, made it through the year. Made it through the year. Two, 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 two lessons from, uh, from that year. One is, <clears throat> Key lime pie is not so bad. <laughs> it ain't chocolate, but it's not so bad. And the second is, the power of a decisive commitment is phenomenal. And it's not just because you're struggling. I mean, if you don't mind, you say, this is it. And you back it up with a couple of reaffirmations as necessary. That commitment will support you when your will or intention is a little weaker. So it's important to understand the power of commitment is greater than what you might think you have committed to or the power that you have personally. So that's the idea of commitment, the goal, the path. I said to... Commit yourself to a path that is worthy of your effort, not a goal. Because a goal is easily imagined as a concept, an idea, a place, a future. And it's a long ways away. And the mind can gra- grasps it and holds it. And it sometimes doesn't give you much guidance for where you are right now. You know that the top of the mountain is up there, but right now you've got to cross this stream. And it's like, you don't see the top of the mountain. It's just an idea. But if you aren't there and present for how to cross this stream, you may never get to the top. So, when you understand that a path is really a, direct, a direction, you're going, you're going towards... or in the direction of the good within you. The whatever, whatever the good is within you, that's what faith aspires to. Faith aspires to the good within you. Desire aspires to enjoy pleasure. But faith aspires to the good. So to develop the good, that's the direction we're going. And at any moment on the path, when we feel confused, when we feel stuck, when we run into an obstacle, we can check. From this point, which direction is towards the good. We can realign ourselves at any time, no matter how, how far into the ditch we are, we can recognize the direction of the good and head in that direction. That's why when you understand the path is more directional than a destination, it can serve you every step of the way. <clears throat> Thank you.
path is what you spend your time doing. Develop, <coughs> developing the path, walking the path. As Sujata said in his book, Beginning to See, to be wealthy, you must spend your time making money. To be free, you must be mindful. And it's easy to play it safe. You know, to kind of not go beyond your comfort zone, not go beyond what is convenient, but we don't grow. To grow means to, to, to stretch beyond your current possibilities, your current limitations, to recognize that what we experience now is a limitation, and to grow requires that we step beyond that, whether it's growing in capacity uh, of energy or resolve or confronting difficult emotions, fear particularly, and just to be willing to to take a look. So you can see that, you know, when we clarify our path and we are clear of the direction that we're going, we need to be sober. We need to have a, a, our feet on the ground and our heart open so that we can be, so we can make that commitment with intent, with seriousness, with earnestness, sincerity. Gandhi says, I know the path. I rejoice to walk on it. I weep when I slip. One who, under, who, one who strives never perishes. I have implicit faith in that promise. Though, therefore, from my weakness I fail a thousand times, I will not lose that faith. We know the path. We fail miserably a lot of the time. But faith, that kind of commitment, (coughs) keeps us going. The path, really, the direction we're going, is a choice we make each moment. And while it may be difficult at times, over time and with repetition, it becomes clearer. So this is the first lesson. Pick your path carefully and then make a commitment. The second lesson is to accept this is the way it is. The way of path, the way of the path, the way of practice, the way of awakening, this is the way it is. You know, it may not be what we thought. It it definitely won't be what we thought. (laughs) Whatever you thought it was going to be, it's something other than that. Because if we, well, as Trungpa Rupa said, if we knew what was going to be involved on this path of awakening, it would be better if we never started. But since we've started, it's better to finish. So Karl Marx said something interesting. He said, people write their own histories, but not under circumstances of their own choosing. This is another way of saying your mind is not yours, but you're responsible for it. Conditions present themselves. Before we can deal with it wisely, before we can even recognize how we're going to deal with it, we have to acknowledge this is the way it is. Just accept. Without resistance, without you know, wishing it to be otherwise, just accept this is the way it is. Now you can do something <coughs> And one consideration that we'll have to mm, remember over and over again is keep it simple. Keep your life simple, keep your practice simple, keep your expectations simple, because even if you try to keep it simple, it is going to get extremely complicated and quickly. So, how do we keep it simple? You know... You know, the, 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 new, the new fad is that the Japanese woman has got the declutter your life thing. Huh? You know, she's really, now she's becoming a, 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 a guru. But nevertheless, one way that we can keep it simple is, as one of our students inquired, ask yourself, what's enough? What's enough? What is enough to eat? What is enough in your closet? What is enough to do? What is enough money? What is enough social commitments? What is enough? And if you just remind yourself, just ask yourself that question. What, in this situation, what's enough? And 
listen to what, listen to what it says because there's more available than we could ever consume and desire is insatiable and that combination is deadly if you realize that desire is insatiable and there's more than we can ever consume there's no end until we ask until we recognize what is enough Don Juan again great teacher he spoke to uh, Carlos about living impeccably even if what you're doing is total folly but to do it with impeccability he says my acts are sincere but they are only the acts of an actor because everything I do is controlled folly everything I do in regard to myself and and my and others is folly because everything is relative the ordinary person views life experiences either blessings or curses but the man or woman who's a spiritual warrior sees all of life's experience as an opportunity to gain knowledge and wisdom one of my colleagues uh, who had formerly practiced in the Zen tradition and later started practicing and teaching in the Theravada tradition when he was in the Zen tradition after some years his teacher asked him to lead the next Sashin so he was prepared or not prepared but first time doing anything especially sharing the Dharma is not easy so he you know, did the best he could. Come the day of the Sashin, he was prepared to give his opening talk, and nobody showed up for the Sashin. And he said, Well, I guess I don't have to do anything. And he said, his, his Zen master said, Oh, no, you do. You have to go give that talk as if it was a full room of people. His job is to share the Dhamma, his job is to express the Dhamma, his job is to. Be available for whoever's there to listen even if nobody shows up. And to do it impeccably. And a lot of what we do with our life and in our practice is, hey, walking practice, walk back and forth here, 20 steps, back and forth for an hour. What's the purpose of that? It's just total folly, isn't it? It's just like... But if you can't do it impeccably, you can't do anything else impeccably. So it's the... The training is training. You know, it's kind of like an obstacle course. It's not the real obstacles, it's pretend obstacles. But still, it's it's discovering the obstacles in your own heart, your own mind, against, or that prevent, you living fully, impeccably, every moment. Every step. Every doorknob. Every time you put your shoes on. One way we can do that, one way we can keep a perspective on that, because to, to live impeccably, to, to really practice impeccably, you know, we have to pay attention to the most minute, well, seemingly insignificant incidences of our life. Every gesture, every acknowledgement, every time you swallow, every time you blink your eyes, every time you stand up, shift your posture, whatever, you know, eventually... We're going to have to notice those things to gain a continuity of mindful awareness that is going to be able to really see the way things are. But the way to balance this microscopic attention to the minutia is to also to reflect on the vastness of what we're doing here. This is not... This, this transformation of the heart that has been mired in confusion, delusion, bewilderment, desire, aversion for lifetimes. It's going to take, it's going to take a bit. You know, it's, not, it's not a weekend gig. You know, it's, not, it's, you know, it's not easy come, easy go. Because it takes practice. It just takes a lot of practice. But if we just get lost in the minutiae of the technique, 
and just become a technician, we'll, we'll run out of steam quickly. But if, when we reflect on the, the vastness, the, uh, the profundity of what we're doing, really trying to awaken to the fullness of being a human being, not what we've been taught, not what we believe, and not what anyone else can do for us. So this growth in uh, balancing the minutiae with the vastness is something like a tightrope walker. You know a tightrope walker? They, high in the air, they're just, they're balanced, but they carry this pole. They carry this heavy pole that extends way beyond their center. So that when they start to lose balance, all they have to do is move that pole an inch or two in their hands and they'll regain their balance. They don't don't have to fall this far before they gain their balance. It's just that pole, that heavy gravity, that the profundity of what we're doing keeps us balanced when we get blown off course or when we're about to be blown off course by the daily winds of circumstance and change. doesn't take much awareness to realize that the environment of the earth is in trouble. And it's when we open to that reality and inform ourselves to the extent that you care to, it can be overwhelming. You know, the, 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 the problems, or the, the challenges that we face as individuals and as humanity really is beyond the scope of any one of us to effect. And yet, we're all part of the problem, and therefore we're all part of the solution. But how do we, how do we hold this in our own heart? How do we hold the overwhelming uh, sadness, uh, grief, uh, feeling disempowered, that's so easy to uh, succumb to uh, in looking at the, the, the condition of the earth. One thing that I found useful, and I'm not suggesting this for anybody, I'm just saying, when, overwhel- when faced with something that overwhelming, I have found it useful to make a personal statement, a personal commitment, a personal, even though it's small, it's just small, commitment. So I plant trees. That's my gig. I plant trees. It's not easy. Especially not on Maui. But when I understand that what this earth needs as much as anything is more trees, it's something I can do. And, you know, all my trees could be wiped out in a couple of years of drought, I know. But nevertheless, it's something. It's something empowering. It's something that I can do with some autonomy there's some wisdom to it. And to make that kind of commitment, even in the face of overwhelming odds in the other direction, is empowering. And that's what's important. To keep yourself empowered in whatever you're facing. Of course, we're facing the awakening of the heart. And that's, that's a challenge. So how to keep yourself empowered is just to make little actions that are empowering to you, whether it's towards the environment or towards the development of a a center like this or your own practice. Nothing is insignificant. It's insignificant, but it all has an effect. Choose a path or commit yourself to a path worthy of your efforts to accept this is the way it is, whatever your path reveals to you, and then to practice impeccably. Now, practicing impeccably really means to be committed, to really, to practice with integrity, to practice with undivided attention, to be honest, to be truthful, to be sincere. It doesn't mean to strive 
in a kind of an unbalanced way. It doesn't mean to be heroic. It means to be continuous. To do your best. Let that be good enough. But to do your best. You know, if we know that we have greater capacity and we don't take the opportunity to express it or to act on it, we will forever know that we didn't do our best. Nobody's telling you. Nobody's going to blame you. But we know ourselves. I didn't live up to I didn't live up to my own commitment. And while that can be painful and that can be, you know, sobering, we can also it can also remind us to recommit, to reinvest, to try again, to start again. So, as I said, you know, when I went to the monastery in um, in Burma, you know, Sayadaw Pandita handed me the schedule and said, here you go, you know, wake up at 3, start sitting and walking, alternate hours, and you can go to bed at 11. And you can get all the sleep you want between 11 and 3. And he wasn't kidding. <laughs> they don't come around and wake you up, but they know somehow. So I was, you know, I was resolved and... I was on fire to realize the Dharma, so set my alarm four hours after I went to bed. Ding, 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 get up, boop, start practicing. First couple of weeks was not easy. But then it got, you know, fairly easy. But for some reason on one night, did I tell you this story yet? No, okay. For, for, some, for some reason, one night, I either set the alarm for five hours, or I didn't hear it, or I heard it and just shut it off. But whatever it was, I was in bed, laying down for five hours. So I was like, okay, well, I'll just get up and sit and walk. Well, every day I was reporting to Pandit at two o'clock, so I went to his room, and I would go to his room, walk in, walk across the floor, and do my bows, give my report, he'd give me some advice, and I'd walk out, ten minutes max. So this day, I go to the door, open the door, step inside, he's sitting over there in the chair, and he says from across the room, he says, how many hours did you sleep last night? <laughs> I said, uh, I wanted to say, oh, I only sleep four. But I said, uh, I slept five. He says, please try harder. End of interview. <laughs> okay. Now, I was trying. I was doing my best. I was doing as impeccably as I could. But when you're working, when you're training with someone with that kind of mind, you don't fool anybody about anything. But it's a relief. It's a relief to know you can be totally honest. You have to be totally honest. And it's a relief to just say, this is the way it is. And that's what the Dharma is. The Dharma is being willing to just acknowledge this is the way it is. Like it or not. I mean, whether I like it or whether they like it, this is the way it is. And it is a great relief to make that kind of commitment to, to practice that impeccably. Hard. Hard. But nevertheless, this is your life. This is not a rehearsal for your life. It's not like the performance comes later. The way you live each day, that's the performance. That's it. We don't get to live this day over again. It's not like we can put off till next retreat or tomorrow. Today is it. Today's all we have. This moment, really, that's it. We forget that, don't we? We think, oh, what I've done in the past is good enough. Hey, I can do it later, tomorrow, next retreat. We don't know. That's what impeccably, the practicing impeccably is. It's like, this may be the last sitting. This may be the last breath, and it will be at some point. Carlos Castaneda, again speaking of, and maybe it was Don Juan, impeccability, he says, impeccability begins with a single act that has to be deliberate, precise, and sustained. If that act is repeated long enough, one acquires a sense of unbending intent which can be applied to anything else. If that is accomplished, the path is clear. One thing will lead to another until the spiritual warrior realizes his or her full potential. 
impeccability, unbending intent, clear path. Inevitably, there are ups and downs. You know, we can see it in, a, in a, even a week-long retreat. Practice comes together, it's smooth, practice falls apart, we're in the ditch, it's really hard, it's a struggle. Don't think it's ever going to be otherwise. That's the way it's going to be. Okay, so what does that require? What does that call forth? Certainly, you know, getting up again and again and again from having fallen down develops great resilience (coughs) and stamina and an ability to recover our balance. And because we, we lose our balance, we get knocked off stride with difficult, challenging... So to, to take, take on this willingness to begin again and to endure with stamina everything. Because that's how we develop resilience to open to everything. So Tuko Ergen was a really a famous, well-known uh, Tibetan teacher of the last century who was preeminent in offering what's called the pointing out instructions, the nature of mind. And lamas and students from all over the world went to him to get the pointing out instruction. And his, two, his sons are Sokni Rinpoche, Mingyur Rinpoche, and he's got a couple of other sons. So his family heritage there. So, at some point, I decided to go with some friends and went to see him. And he's, he's a well-known, I mean, the Dalai Lama goes to get lessons from him, and Dogo Kinsu Rinpoche, all of the great lamas would go to him to get these instructions. And he's living in a you know, outside Kathmandu, up in the mountains, in the, in, a, in the temple. And simple as can be. And you go to see him, and he says, I don't know what you're here for. He says, I only teach one thing. If you hear it once, you, that's it. If you hear it twice, you hear the same thing twice. You know, we wanted to come see him every day, you know, for two weeks, he says. You know, I'm gonna, I can only tell you the same thing over and over. <laughs> That's, that's stamina. <laughs> and, you know, somebody at one point, not, not in our group, but I heard that he was offering some teachings. And he's in a room, you know, like this. Smaller, much smaller than this. But he's in a room teaching. And right next door, the room next door was being demolished with jackhammers and cement building. It was just being demolished while he was offering teachings here. So one of his sons said to him, said, Dad, you know, Maybe we ought to, uh, you know, relocate, or maybe we could put it off until the lease is done, and then we can, uh, you know, have better conditions for teaching. <laughs> and Tukorugan said, "If you can't tolerate that little noise, how do you think you're ever going to survive the transition from death, from this death to your next life?" Bardo, he, he read, referenced the Bardo. He says, "This is nothing." So learning how to stay present, learning how to stay focused, learning how to stay on task in the midst of chaos, that's what's required. Because at times it's going to look, our life is going to look like a chaotic mess. It's going to be too loud, it's going to be too bothersome, it's going to be... We can even get it here, you know, rain on the roof and everything. Noisy. Nisargadatta Maharaj, he's a Swami in, in India, also of the last century, uh, very, uh, very wise man. He said, you need not know what you are. It is enough to know what you are not. What you are, you'll never know. For every discovery reveals new dimensions to conquer. The unknown has no limits. Truth is in the discovery, not 
the discovered. And to discovery there is no beginning and no end. Question the limits. Go beyond. Set yourself tasks that are apparently impossible. This is the only way. So we practice impeccably, even in the face of impossibility. There's no other way. So, commit to a path worthy of your efforts, accept this is the way it is, practice impeccably, persevere joyfully. There are these eight conditions that all beings experience, praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain. And though we might wish to only experience the pleasure, the gain, the fame, the praise, we can be sure we're going to receive the other end too. It's inevitable. Okay. How are we going to face life knowing that it's inevitable that we're going to be blamed, we're going to experience pain, we're going to experience loss, we're going to experience disrepute. Some people are just not going to approve of what we do. How can we consider that and those experiences with full awareness joyfully? That's the question. Because we are going to experience very difficult physical, emotional, maybe financial. It's just, you know, there's nobody escapes life without great challenges. So the, the, the work for us is, how do, how do we take this on and say, you know what, even in the face of overwhelming adversity, there's joy to be found. The joy is not in the experience. The joy is in your willingness to recognize, to be with, to be aware of, to do your best with. That's where the joy is. And the joy comes from whatever understanding you can bring. You know, I talked about the truth of dukkha, the first noble truth of dukkha. Some of it's pain, really pain, extreme pain. Some of it's the insecurity and the vulnerability we feel because things change. And some of it's just the oppressive repetition of life's burdens and demands. Okay. It's easy to, to hear that and just get depressed and just get despairing and say, why bother? Jeez, you know, it's just going to be painful and insecure and oppressive. It's like... And yet, if we're just experiencing dukkha, that would be the conditioned response. Depression, despair, hopelessness. But to understand, oh, this is the way it is. It's not your fault. That brings, when you understand this about dukkha, that brings joy to the mind. Because you don't have to be depressed. You don't have to be despairing. To understand and not struggle against the truth of dukkha. But learn to live in alignment, uh, accommodating it, knowing it, expecting it. Dukkha's dukkha. It's never going to be otherwise. But nevertheless, knowing that and living our life accepting that can be joyful. This is a spiritual joy. It's not, oh boy, I'm so happy to be experiencing pain. That's <laughs> foolishness. But it's the, the joy that is willing to open to the life, to life, the fullness of life. To discover, you know, what can be known, and how we can learn to relate to the most difficult challenges of life. To live poised at the exquisite tangibility of all of life is joyful. Many ways to do that. Many ways to bring ourselves, to encourage ourselves to do that. There are just dozens of reflections that we can uh, call up. We can reflect on the Buddha, we can ref- the virtues of the Buddha. We can reflect on the value of the Dharma. We can reflect on the, the pervasiveness and the support of the Sangha. When you understand the nobility of what the Buddha did, 
disentangling this heart, this mind, from suffering and the causes of suffering, and understand this is what we're doing. And what we're doing here, this this retreat, is none other than what? Men, women, monks, nuns, otherwise, all across history have had to do to free their hearts from suffering. We're not any different. Same stuff. Exactly the same. They're human, we're human, same conditions. And if you think monks and nuns have it easier than laymen and laywomen, forget it. It's also tough. But, when we reflect on the nobility of the practice, or when we think about, here we have this opportunity. We're here at Cloud Mountain. Somebody has provided this place for us. You know? The cost to come here doesn't include building this place. This place is here as a gift from others who have seen the value of what we do here, made this place available, and just reflecting on that, there is immense support for us to do the work we're doing here. It's inspiring. It's, it's, it's moving. It's, it's like you want to be worthy of others' aspirations for you or investment for you. There's lots to reflect on to support our practice so that we can feel empowered, inspired, encouraged because, you know, we are going to investigate that first noble truth. There was this Chinese monk, I can't remember his name, but it said that he, his teaching was to develop the long-enduring mind. And I remember reading somewhere that he did years and years of practice. You know, one time he'd do ten years of this, ten years of that, ten years of something else. I think he got enlightened in his mid-fifty, mid to late fifties. And then he started teaching, and he talked till he was 120. Long-enduring mind. That's the teaching. Develop the long, enduring mind. Not just the long, putting up with mind, but, but the long, the mind that can, can be there for the long haul, however long it is, whatever it takes to disentangle this heart. The last lesson that I want to speak about tonight Certainly not the last in our whole journey, but and that is to express our gratitude. The Buddha said there are these two kinds of people, or these two kinds of people are rare in the world. One who takes initiative in helping others, being humanitarian, and one who is grateful. But interestingly, Western science, Western psychology has discovered that expressing your gratitude is the most effective intervention for engendering a sense of well-being. You want a sense of well-being? Express your gratitude. Guaranteed. And what is expressing our gratitude? What what is even recognizing what we're grateful for? You know, it's that old, I think this is a Christian thing. Count your blessings. And just, just daily, what can we be grateful for today? And who can we thank for that? Who can we express our appreciation to for that. Those who hear the Dharma owe an incalculable debt of gratitude to those who have brought it to us. And I don't mean me, and I don't mean Laura and Dharma Dasa at Cloud Mountain. I mean the whole lineage of teachers from the time of the Buddha to now. And all those hundreds of thousands, millions of people that have kept this alive. Not just the books, not just the knowledge, but the wisdom that comes from practice. We have so much to be grateful for to hear these teachings. I remember when I did my first retreat, I had, before I did my first retreat, I didn't know any Buddhists, I didn't know any meditators, I wasn't interested in spiritual practice. Furthest thing from my mind, I was into the Grateful Dead. 
which is kind of a spiritual practice. But nevertheless, I wasn't... And I went to a retreat, two-week retreat, first thing, never sat for one minute before I went to a two-week retreat. It was torture. Absolute miserable. Aching body, screaming pain in the body, and the mind was no better. But when I heard the talks in the evening about the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the practice of mindfulness, Seven Factors of Awakening, it was as if I was hearing for the first time what I had always known to be true. I don't know. It was just common sense. It wasn't. It wasn't common sense. It was deep within my heart. This is the way it is. This is an expression of what I know to be true. Although I'd never heard it, never read it, didn't know anything about it. Who brought that to me? Well, it was carried along in Burma and Thailand and Tibet. And Western teachers finally got it, finally brought it over here so that I could hear it. It's almost inconceivable how lucky, lucky we are to hear the dialogue. There's more to say. But actually, you know, out of our gratitude for hearing the Dharma, having the chance to practice the Dharma, having the chance to realize a little bit of the Dharma for ourselves, you can't. I mean, it's nice to be grateful for your teachers. It's nice to be grateful for your supporters of this place. But really, the only way we can really express our gratitude in the fullness of it is to live our life with awareness. There's just really no other way. And it's it's what we want to do anyway. If we can live... As when I was a monk, you know, monks receive everything as gifts. Robes, bowl, place to live, medicines, and daily food. When I would go on alms round in, in Rangoon, and the people in Rangoon, they, they, weren't, they weren't wealthy. They were, the neighborhood around the monastery where I lived, Pretty poor. Nevertheless, we'd go out every day as a, as a group of monks to collect alms, and mostly it was rice and occasional curries and things. And when you come come to, you know, you're walking, I was walking in the alms round, and you come up to some, you know, housewife or kids or whoever was there to offer the rice, they are so happy and they are so grateful have a living presence of monks and nuns, although nuns only go out once a week, I think, in their life, that it's their expression of faith and it's their practice to be generous to, to them. And, and as a monk, I don't, I don't know them. They don't know me. All they know is I've made a commitment to live this life of awareness. So all I could do to express my gratitude to them was to be sincere in my practice. To just be sincere, just nothing. Didn't have to demonstrate anything more than living impeccably. And that's what's that's what our opportunity is too. To take what we learn, to take how we practice into our life and to live our life as an expression of our gratitude of having heard the Dharma. We may not see who gets the benefit. We may not understand how they benefit. But we can be sure that just as we are affected by everyone in our life, they too are affected by us. And if we're expressing our gratitude, our wisdom, our compassion, through the way we speak, through the way we act, it's going to have a profound impact on the world. That's what our practice is. It's a path worthy of our efforts. If we practice impeccably and acknowledge our gratitude, we won't have anything to complain about. So let's let the words 
settle into our hands. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.